Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to Haunted Road, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. Sitting at the end of a long, tree-lined driveway, the White Hill Mansion in Fieldsboro, New Jersey, has always held secrets. During the American Revolution, the home concealed colonial troops from British and German forces. Later, Political leaders used tucked-away upstairs spaces for clandestine rendezvous. The attic once held a bordello, and when one of the owners was arrested for bootlegging during Prohibition, officials found more than 1,000 gallons of liquor hidden on the property. Today, the secrets of the White Hill Mansion are different. They come from darkened corners where voices call out when no one is there. They shuffle up the stairs at night, invisible footsteps on empty staircases. They even come from above, the thudding sounds from higher floors that some have described as reminiscent of a body being dragged across a floor. I'm Amy Bruni, and this is Haunted Road. In 1722, Robert Field purchased 300 acres of land in White Hill, a borough near Trenton, New Jersey. Almost 20 years later, he built a Georgian-style home on the property, the beginnings of the White Hill Mansion that sits there today. Field's son, Robert Field II, inherited the property in 1757. A prominent lawyer, Robert II, expanded the home and established more businesses on the property, not only a farm and orchard, but also a fishery and distillery. Robert and his wife, Mary Peel Field, had seven children, although only three, Lydia, Mary, and Robert, lived to see adulthood. As the businesses prospered, Robert's profile grew in the community. In 1774, he was appointed to the Committee of Correspondence of New Jersey, which was attempting to get American representation in the British Parliament. Field even wrote some of their material himself. On the night of January 29, 1775, Robert Field II drowned in the nearby Delaware River under very mysterious circumstances. It's believed that the boat was being rowed by a British sympathizer, either a spy for King George or a loyalist. The boatsman allegedly hit Robert in the head with an oar, knocking him unconscious and threw him in the river. Some have speculated that Field had discovered that the man was a spy and was planning to turn him in. According to a contemporary newspaper report in Dunlap and Claypool's American Daily Advertiser, Robert was going in a canoe on board his shallop when he unfortunately fell over and was drowned. 
He had only his companion with him, who threw over the paddle to him, but Mr. Field sunk immediately. By this untimely accident, his relations, friends, and neighbors have lost a worthy and agreeable companion. The Fields were slave owners, so it's likely that the man in the boat was enslaved by him. According to a family genealogy reported through the National Register of Historic Places, his death has always been involved in mystery. He was going down to Philadelphia from his home at White Hill on a sloop. He left the sloop for a few hours during a calm and went on shore to call on a pioneer. When the wind arose at 12 o'clock at night, the captain sent a rowboat for him attended by one man. When the boat reached the sloop, he was missing and was never heard from again, although every effort was made to recover his body. Mary Peel Field was five months pregnant with their seventh child at the time of Robert's death. The following year, in 1776, Mary had a notable dinner guest, the American Navy's Captain Tom Houston. This led to her neighbors reporting her as a colonial sympathizer. Shortly after, the British Army searched the home for colonial soldiers. Some historians believe that she was hiding them, likely in the house's attic or basement, but none were ever discovered. To aid in his efforts to maintain control of the American colonies, King George enlisted military support from principalities around what would later become the unified country of Germany. About half the soldiers for hire came from the Hesse Castle region, so in America, the troops became known as the Hessian Army. On December 12, 1776, the Hessian Army's Captain Rendon made White Hill Mansion his temporary headquarters. But despite her likely alignment with the other side, Mary maintained a level of civility with the Hessians. During this time, she was visited several times by Hessian Colonel Carl von Donlop, who wrote an order ensuring the protection of the field property during the war. Von Donlop's safeguards meant that, according to the National Registry of Historic Places, although many houses in the area surrounding White Hill were ravaged, the farms stripped of their crops and their outbuildings disassembled and carried off as firewood, White Hill was spared. According to Loretta Kelly, a longtime preservationist at the mansion, a lot of the houses along the river were burned down, but whoever showed up at Mary's door was her best friend. She knew how to play both ends against the middle. After American troops defeated the Hessian forces during the holiday season, most notably the victory at Trenton when Washington crossed the Delaware, Captain Rendon left the mansion. In 1778, British troops occupied the mansion while they searched for Commodore John Barry of the U.S. Navy, who had been staying there at the time. In 1779, Mary Peel Field married Commodore Thomas Reed of the Pennsylvania Navy, who made White Hill his county seat. The same year, she helped Commodore John Barry evade capture by British forces. In the following decade, Mary's mother and husband died in the mansion, and she signed ownership over to her son, Robert Field III, and his wife, Abigail. Abigail, too, had a strong connection to American independence. Her father, Richard Stockton, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence from what was then the New Jersey Colony, and he also helped to establish Princeton University. Robert III and Abigail had six children, it was this field hare who created White Hill Mansion as it is today, connecting the buildings on the property to create a single two-story structure. The home is brick with white trim, with three chimneys rising from the roof. If you visit today, you can see the precise places this happened inside the home. Abigail's mother, Annis, died in the home in 1801. 
Robert lost the home in 1804. It went up for sale due to his squandering of the family's money on entertainment and expensive possessions, according to the mansion's history. Two years later, Abigail's brother Richard bought White Hill to help the fields save face. He allowed Robert and Abigail to stay in the house where they would live until his death. In 1850, the borough of White Hill was officially renamed Fieldsboro after the Field family. After Robert and Abigail died, the home went through many owners and many different uses. David Bruce Sr. bought White Hill Mansion in 1821. His son, David Bruce Jr., invented a new typecasting machine in the attic of the house and new typefaces, including a version of today's Times Roman. In the late 1800s, potter and ceramicist Joseph Mayer lived in the home and built a kiln in the basement. He invented several new pottery techniques while living at White Hill Mansion. In 1895, industrialist Joseph Crossley purchased the mansion. His son Archibald, born in 1897, would be the last baby to be born in the home. Archibald Crossley would go on to be one of the developers of the political opinion poll. This is when the history of White Hill Mansion starts to get really mysterious. When the Crossleys moved out in 1911, they sold the house to a woman named Susanna Graham for the sum of $1. But there are no historical records of who Graham was. The house was subsequently abandoned and squatters moved in. During this time, the mansion became a bordello, with sliding doors built to conceal secret stairways and the attic sectioned off into several rooms. In 1923, Heinrich and Katrina Glenk purchased the property, turning the space into an upscale German restaurant, which became a favorite among political and distinguished guests. As the mansion's history describes it, over the years, the establishment went by several names, including the mansion, Glenk's Mansion House, and the White Hill Mansion Restaurant. In the tradition of Mary Peel Fields neutrality, the Glenks hosted both Republican and Democratic politicians, although it was a favorite hangout of the GOP. According to their grandson, John, my grandmother was a Republican and a Democrat, depending on who was in the restaurant. Even after the wars were over, the mansion continued to be the site of important moments in American history. The building of the New Jersey Turnpike and Interstate 295 was supposedly negotiated by politicians while at the mansion house. During Prohibition, the restaurant continued to serve alcohol, with the Glenks adding a bar to the basement of the home by digging out an additional two feet of depth in the cellar floor. Heinrich was allegedly a bootlegger, he was arrested for this in 1924, but it's unclear whether he served jail time. According to the National Register of Historic Places, the charges read, seized 1,000 gallons of liquor, large quantities of beer, wine, and whiskey were found at various places along the Delaware. Heinrich likely used a tunnel in the basement of the home, which leads down to the river, to smuggle his contraband in and out. It's unproven, but suspected, that the restaurant had mob ties during this period. It's also said that local politicians would use upstairs rooms to meet their mistresses. By this point, Mary Field's former bedroom had been converted into a private dining room where guests could ring a buzzer when they wanted service. Heinrich died in 1952, but the restaurant stayed in the family until 1972 when Katrina sold it. Eventually, White Hill Mansion found its way into the hands of the Stepin Chemical Company, which has a plant adjacent to the property. 
It bought the mansion and its surrounding seven acres with the aim of turning it into corporate offices, but abandoned the project due to cost. For almost a decade, the home sat abandoned and neglected until the borough of Fieldsboro bought the mansion in 1999. Preservation efforts began in 2004, and the home was listed as a state-registered historic place in 2012. It's now run by the Friends of White Hill Mansion, which offer historic tours and is renovating the rundown property. Although White Hill Mansion has seen better days, in some ways, it's still as grand as it was in its heyday. It sits on a bluff high above the Delaware River, surrounded by trees. Walking through the mansion, it's easy to see all the phases of its history. There's the speakeasy basement and the bordello attic, but there's more than that, especially in its blend of architectural styles. The original mid-1700s building was erected in the Georgian style, and that brickwork is still very evident today. But late 1800s additions were made in the Greek Revival and Queen Anne shingle styles, adding dormers to the roof, ironwork, and other Gothic details. The most modern portion of the building is a single-story dining room with a flat roof added around 1960. Once you make your way down the long driveway and through the trees, you'll first encounter a covered porch built in the early 20th century, which protects the 19th century main entry to the house. Walk inside, and you'll be greeted by a central hall with an ornate circa 1896 staircase. The first floor features the circa 1760 parlor, two other sitting rooms, the 1960s dining room with a wall of windows overlooking the Delaware, and the kitchen rooms. The second floor features multiple bedrooms, the nursery, several bathrooms, and another kitchen. The original primary bedroom was cut up during the restaurant era to additionally accommodate a ladies' room and a coat room. In addition to the main access to the attic, a hidden staircase from one of the bathrooms provides access to the bordello rooms upstairs. The attic is divided into a number of rooms, including a living room and a bedroom used by members of the Glenk family, and two small rooms probably used by the bordello. The basement of the mansion was constructed in several stages in the 1700s and 1800s. It still features the Prohibition-era bar with green carpeting and wood paneling over the original stone walls. Archaeological excavations in 2011 and 2013 revealed the remains of the original 1722 home and evidence of a collapsed tunnel leading from the house to the river. The tunnels would have been used to get supplies from the river and to access the ferry there, as the home is on a 40-foot bluff above the water. They were also likely where Mary Peel Field directed colonial soldiers to hide during the Revolutionary War. Some speculate that the tunnels may have also been used as part of the Underground Railroad. The digs also revealed Native American artifacts from a Lenape winter settlement in pre-colonial days, and 18th century items used by the Field family. There are remnants of the past that are easy to find, and then there are the ghosts of the mansion's past lives that people report experiencing in different, decidedly more spooky ways. Reports of hauntings at White Hill Mansion date to when the building operated as a restaurant. In Passport to the Paranormal, Rich Newman writes that patrons began to hear ghostly footsteps, see objects moving around in the dining room, and even see shadowy figures scooting around the restaurant. Lights in the mansion are said to turn on and off without cause, and tour guides in the mansion have described the feeling of being watched when no one is around. 
They also report unexplained noises of what some say are invisible footsteps on the stairs at night and of heavy objects, perhaps even a body, being dragged across the floor in the attic. Some believe that the spirit of a woman who was involved in sex work, possibly against her will, is present in the attic as well. Disembodied voices and sounds have been reported throughout the house, including the claim of one investigator who says he heard the voice of a woman asking him to introduce himself. The apparition of an unknown man has also been reported on one of the house's staircases. The sounds of children playing have been heard in what was once the nursery. On one paranormal television show, investigators claimed to have seen a quickly moving childlike apparition flying around corners and between floors. This is said by some to be the ghost of Samuel Field, Mary's son, who died in childhood. Those who lived and worked in the home make frequent appearances in paranormal investigations, some saying they've heard the voice of Heinrich Glenk coming from the attic. Others claim to have made contact with a talkative ghost, believed to be a former servant on the property. Thomas Reed, Mary Peel Field's second husband, has been heard on EVPs. Mary herself, seated at a desk and writing a letter, has been reported in the parlor on the first floor of the mansion and women and children sometimes report the sensation of having their hands touched or grabbed in that room. Garden State ghost hunters report that the ghost of a woman named Dolly, who was married at the mansion and still wears her wedding dress, is present on the property. This may be the Glank's daughter, Magdalena Dolly Billingham, who lived and worked at the establishment for many years and was photographed in the mansion in her wedding dress in 1936. Dolly lived in some of the attic rooms believed to have been a bordello. A tub in the second floor bathroom, which some call the bloody bathroom or the bloody bathtub, is said to be haunted. People who climb into the bathtub sometimes find it hard to climb out, saying that it feels as if a weight is holding them down. It's alleged that a man either committed suicide or had his throat slit in it, but there's no evidence of a murder or suicide on the property. According to a Princeton Info article written by Suzanne Van Dongen, people who are really sensitive and or psychic have come in this room and said that bathtub is full of blood. It's possible the bloody bathroom moniker stems from the red trim on the walls of the room and the story was created from there. The basement bar is said to be home to poltergeist activity. Items will suddenly move on their own, either sliding across the bar or being thrown. Dawn Reichard of the Friends of the White Hill Mansion claims to have had a plastic vase thrown at her, nearly hitting her in the head in the basement. One tour guide had the experience of her necklace suddenly snapping, sending beads flying while she was behind the bar. The spirit there is said to dislike it when anyone comes behind the bar. Another entity said to be present in the basement is, as Dana Newkirk described it for Week and Weird, a featureless shadow man. As one paranormal group describes it, supposedly, if you stay near the basement long enough, a dark figure may creep into your personal space before slinking back down to the depths of the basement. Sounds like a very pleasant space, right? Well, don't take my word for it, because up next we do have Don Reichard of Friends of the White Hill Mansion joining us, and she's ready to share what she knows of the paranormal activity in the mansion, and there's a lot to go over. That is coming up after the break. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. All right, I am currently joined by Don Reichard, who is the president of the Friends of the White Hill Mansion, correct, Don? That is correct. So thank you so much for joining me. Um, I have been to the mansion one time. I was there for a couple nights, though, uh, so I have seen it in person. Uh, it looks like it should be very, very haunted. <laughs> you know, as <laughs> soon as you kind of pull up, it is a very ominous-looking building, but the history is just fascinating. So I can see why you guys are working so tirelessly to make sure that it is saved in some form. Yeah, thank you. It's um, a lot of work, but it's a labor of love. I can imagine. Uh, it's it's the history to me. It's probably one of the more historic, oh, historically diverse mansions <laughs> I have investigated because so much has gone on there. Um, and also, obviously, a lot of paranormal activity as yeah. well. So for you, um, how long have you been involved with the mansion? I first came across the mansion in 2010. Um, I became a volunteer not long afterwards. But the first time I was there, I actually experienced paranormal activity. So between that and the history and just the challenge of um, historical renovations, that was it. I was hooked between those three things. See, um, I like that. Uh, you know, many times uh, someone would experience something paranormal and say, you know, peace out, <laughs> you know, but in your case, that was one of the things that got you more interested. Uh, what was that first experience? My very first one was on the main stairway. I was walking up there and I heard a female voice. It sounded like French to me. Hmm. And when I asked the historian at the time, um, she told me that Mary Field spoke English and French. And when the Hessians occupied her house, they spoke German and French. So the only form of communication during that time period was, of course, French. So I found that very interesting. That is really interesting. Have you brought in people who speak French to see if that gets a reaction from the spirits? We actually have not. I started studying French about six months ago. Huh. So I am hoping to try my new skills at the house at some point. Yeah, it's time to time to get into that Rosetta Stone program or whatever it yeah, is. Right? <laughs> uh, you know, I've found a few times over the years that, uh, you know, people ask us all the time, why do you go into a place speaking English when you know that the spirits potentially spoke another language? Um, you know, some people theorize that there is this idea of universal consciousness where spirits uh, can somehow communicate in different languages when they pass on but other times it seems like we need to bring in an interpreter so i know we've done that a few times over the years um 
We've brought in Spanish interpreters. We brought in we've brought in a Polish speaking person a few times on cases, uh, nice. and it does work. So I'd be curious to know what happens. Um, so yeah, you had that absolutely. first experience, mm-hmm. and what what else do people encounter there? Like what what would you say are the more kind of regular occurrences that happen? Oh my goodness. Please. I think with any place, it tends to fluctuate. But the most common are experiences in the basement. Um, you know, we don't have any actual historic proof that there was mob activity in the house. Uh-huh. But anytime you have an illegal undertaking, say like running illegal liquor, uh, there's a good chance that you might have mob activity around it. And it definitely seems like if you've ever communicated with the spirits down in the basement, it does seem like there's a connection there. And that's one of the more common interactions is down there. Um, And of course, there's a little child on the second floor that many people have heard running up and down the hallway. Yeah, now that basement, now that's the area, it's like, it's a bar, right? Downstairs. Yeah, so I do remember that. And if there was ever a a prohibition area looking, or era looking bar, that is it. Yes. (laughs) You go down there and you can almost see you know, mobsters like gathering around tables down there and playing cards. <laughs> it just, it looks so like the stereotypical kind of hideout. Uh, and it does feel that way too. It feels kind of uh, oppressive down there a little bit. Like it doesn't feel completely, you don't feel completely at ease in that area. And, you know, I went down there by myself a few times just helping to set up equipment. And every time I found myself kind of rushing to get out of there, is that common? Absolutely. Do you feel like you're being watched? Oh, totally. I absolutely, and especially when I was alone. And, you know, I'm, when I'm investigating, I'm one of those people where I try to really pay attention to the feelings I'm having. I don't necessarily think that I'm psychic, but I do think I'm pretty empathetic or, or, you know, I think I can feel other people's emotions, just like someone standing in front of me. And every time I went down there by myself, I was very quick to vacate the area yes ma'am that's very Uh, common um he's threatened me a few times so i've gotten into the habit of not going down there by myself but um if the the most dominant spirit down there if he's in the mood to do something it doesn't matter if there's 10 people down there or one he's going to do what he does so did what is when you say he threatened you what does he do um the first experience i had was when I had run downstairs to get a screwdriver behind the bar. And when I had run down there, I leaned over to open up the drawer and a vase that was on the counter hit the wall next to me. So I didn't actually see it fly in the air, but I did see it just mess my head. And we tried to debunk it as many ways as we can. And I don't know if you remember that bar, but there's lips on both sides of the bar. Yes. So it's kind of hard, even if jump up and down to get it to fall over so how it flew across the room i'm not sure um but i was given a tour in front of 15 people um wearing a necklace and i could feel pressure on the back of my neck while i was talking and i just ignore it if i'm having paranormal activity while given a tour i ignore it because i don't want people to think i'm making it up as for a better experience right and then all of a sudden the necklace broke and the beads went flying everywhere. And I'm trying to stay calm and just keep talking. And uh, of course, the tour was like, um, excuse me, lady, what just happened there? Oh. So 
it doesn't matter who I'm with. If it happens, it just happens. And very recently, I was down there for a meeting. So I was with other people and I was sitting in one of the chairs at the table and I got hit on the top of the head so hard. I thought the ceiling fell on my head. Oh, no. See, that's that's disturbing type of act. Like there's clearly something or someone down there who does not uh, appreciate your presence. I don't know if this is, um, you know, someone who who doesn't like women in particular, or does this person pick on anyone of any gender? Well, I have a guess. I have a friend who channels. So I was so curious about this, we'll say, gentleman. Um, And I was actually lucky enough to interview him twice, believe it or not. And um, yeah, it's basically me. He doesn't like me. And the reason was he said that I have come closest to his secret, which is really intriguing. Okay. And so we're not quite sure who this gentleman is. Do you have any ideas? Has he ever said a name or anything? He has. Um, It was kind of like, I promised I wouldn't tell anyone. It's up to him if he wants to tell people, but it was like, um, like a Jimmy the Nose kind of name. Okay. And now have you been, I mean, obviously, this is what's always interesting in these kind of locations. Like there's not records of a lot of these folks, you know. Right. Especially not of that era. Correct. Yeah. I'm assuming you haven't found any records of uh, this name matching someone. No, not, we haven't had any success. He did tell us that he was from Wichita. And um, he doesn't like being there. And he's okay. very angry about being there. So I don't know why he stays. He just kind of grumbles. And at that one time I asked him a question, he told me to shut up or he'd smash a bottle over my head. Oh, wow. He sounds like a very pleasant fellow. <laughs> yes. And what's very interesting is I was given a tour at one time and I had a gentleman who was about 80 years old, 70, 80. And he said when he was a kid, his grandfather used to take him fishing on the Delaware River. And his grandfather pointed up to the house and said, see that house? They used to Shanghai people there in the 1930s. Oh. Now, I don't know if that's true, um, but that's really disturbing if it is. Yeah. I mean, that kind of activity, like, I, I mean, we always theorize that spirits like that are staying behind for some sort of reason. You know, it's usually some sort of unfinished business. I talk about this a lot, but, you know, people are always like, why don't you cross them over? And a lot of times these folks don't want to move on or they can't move on until they f- they figure out their own kind of issues. Uh, he doesn't sound like someone anyone would really want to help per se, <laughs> you know, it's, it, and so he's probably not going to be able to figure this out anytime soon, yeah. uh, in my opinion. But it's so interesting that those are the experiences you have down there because I felt that so strongly in that area. And I'm assuming these happen day or night, correct? Oh, correct. Yeah. Doesn't matter what time you're there. When it happens, it happens. Yeah. Um, and now, have you ever had any people that come in for like a tour or anything who go in that area and decide they are done, like they've had to leave or anything like that? Not usually doing a tour because if you've been down there, it's kind of a cool area. Mm-hmm. So if it is lighthearted, especially if he's not there, it's actually a lighthearted kind of space. Right. Um, but I have had people on the second floor not even finish the tour and leave. Oh, okay. And now why do you think that is? Is that, are, did they see something? Is it a feeling? Well, a couple times it was a voice. So at one point we were in the area, do you remember where Adam heard the music? 
Yes. On the episode in that area. And I was talking and I just said, you know, we suspect that there was a servant in this area. And apparently the servant answered and said, yes, he was there. And um, when the tour heard it, they said, yeah, we're done. (laughs) That was enough. I, you know, disembodied voices are very strange because they come out of, literally, they come out of thin air. They, you can hear and detect them from where a mouth would be if someone were to be standing right in front of you talking. And it, it just makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up because your your body, your being knows there's something very unnatural about that. So I could see an entire tour group just being like, we're done, done here. Thank you. That was lovely. <laughs> yeah, I think you never forget your first disembodied voice. No, no. There, I'd still to this day, uh, disembodied voices and being touched are two types of paranormal activity that I really just, they're not my favorite. You know, sometimes people get very excited when these things happen. Um, but for some reason, disembodied voices just really creep me out. Like I am thankful when they happen and I do, you know, uh, I take stock in them during the investigation. But if they're like right in front of me, it, it's a lot. I get a little shaken still to this day. Yeah, you don't want to hang out there a lot because it's it's extremely common. I don't know why, but it's very common just to hear voices. Right. My and husband now- was my husband was there last week and he was doing some work down in the basement. He said he heard so much talking. He actually stopped and walked up the stairs to look around to see who was there. Yeah, and I've heard that's kind of an experience people have there where they'll hear just people kind of going about their business on other floors or in other rooms and and they might think that it's an actual living person but they go to investigate and the space is empty so is that common i've heard it a few times where i don't know if it was dinner conversation because of course it was um a restaurant for over Uh 50 years but it just sounds like murmuring you can't really make out what's being said it's like a conversation a couple rooms over um, I've even talked to the police department who have been there on occasions who have investigated, you know, like sounds coming from another room and haven't been able to find them. Now, do I am I remembering correctly that the police have been called there because of activity a few times or something like that? Yes. As a matter of fact, I think it was last year I was talking to the police, uh, the chief of police. And they were doing a surveillance, and he said that he saw a light on in one of the windows. He said, we were going to go in and investigate, but we figured you just left the lamp on. And I don't have a lamp near any of the windows, so I said, which window? He pointed up to the third floor, um, and I said, there's no electricity on the third floor. And he said to me, because I'm never going in that house. (laughs) But we've been called there. You know, sometimes we have Uh break-ins, and... um, a lot of times the police will just hang out. I'm like, do you want me to go first? Do you have the guns? Do you want me to go first? Um, and that's kind of common because I think they have been called there before in the past. And I don't think anybody's too comfortable going in there by themselves. No, I mean, I it's, I always find uh, stories from law enforcement to be fascinating because they, they uh, always have some, they have some pretty wild experiences that they're not always really comfortable sharing with the public, but they'll tell me, you know, they'll come to events and things. And uh, I feel like I do remember that. I think even when we were there filming, the police stopped by a few times. Um, they do. They're very wonderful and keep an eye on the house for us. 
That's great. I mean, I think you need that too. I mean, that community aspect to protect that place. Because like I said, when you roll up on it, it does look abandoned. Uh, and so if you didn't know better, you'd think you could just kind of, sh- you know, Jimmy open that back door or something. Oh, yeah. It's been done before. I think there's been break-ins in every side of that house. Um, unfortunately, sometimes they destroy stuff. Yeah. So now that we have cameras, alarm system, and lights, it's helped a lot. That's a couple awesome. times. Yeah, we'll see kids hanging out, and we'll just set the alarm off just to keep them moving on their way. Right. I mean, that's a big thing, too. Once you find out a place is haunted, uh, or it kind of gets out there that it's haunted, and not that I did this, I I absolutely did. But as a teenager, (laughs) you know, there's a lot of daring involved, and kids get ideas in their heads, and they want to get into these places. They don't really think it through. Um, thankfully, there weren't as many cameras and things as when I was a kid. And, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. Or, and I'm sure I'm sure most of the break ins were just kids just trying to have an experience. And, right. you know, I've even say, seen kids hanging out and said, listen, I'll give you a tour if you want to see what it's like. Now, That's I'm a really than, good uh, tactic, honestly, you know, absolutely. just kind of let them in to see it and kind of, uh, you know, get their curiosity uh, fulfilled so they don't try to break into it later. Uh, now, okay, so we've talked about tours and talked about your husband's uh, recent experience. Uh, what would you say is maybe kind of the more, I mean, you've obviously had some pretty extreme things happen, but what are some of the more kind of extreme stories that have come out of the mansion that you've heard over the years as far as paranormal activity? Um, well, the newest thing is sightings of the crawly thing up in the attic. Oh, one of those. Yes, I um I've never had the pleasure, thank goodness. Eh. Um, but there have been a couple of people that have seen like a shadow crawling across the floor, um, in the one room. Luckily, never while they're in the room. Usually, mm-hmm. when they're in across the hall, looking into the room, they'll see something moving in there. So, yes, I've never had the pleasure. You know, I will say, and I've said this before on the show that some of these places, for some reason, when they start to be investigated more these crawlers start appearing. That's what they call them as crawlers. They're not usually a phenomenon that you see in locations that are not investigated on the regular. And, That's interesting. Yeah, and and we kind of theorize that they are this almost embodiment of the energy that investigators and, and people coming in to ghost hunt uh, create because they come into a location over and over again, um, you know, and they walk in there. Sometimes they're nervous. Sometimes they're excited. Uh, they talk about the kind of deaths that have happened there over and over again. Um, and there's just something about that energy. And just as these years have gone by, more and more of these are appearing. And like, I could be completely off base here as to where they're coming from. But they're not something that people report when they first start investigating a place. They kind of come like form over time. Uh, And so it's definitely something I want to kind of study a little bit more because we've been able to get rid of them in a couple of places by kind of counteracting that energy and bringing Mm, like a more positive energy into a place because they can sometimes become stronger and bigger and more powerful. They don't really touch people, but they're creepy. (laughs) I can imagine. And your story makes sense because I haven't had the claims 
until recently, within the last two years. Yeah, and I know um, you guys do pretty regular investigations there, right? Correct. Yeah, and I think it's really important to note that investigations in some of these locations are really a great form of revenue to help save these places. Um, yes. So I'm, I'm thinking like, I think it's great that you guys are able to do that and open to that because I think a lot of historical locations, um, not a lot, but a few, are kind of closed off to the idea of investigating and ghosts. And, um, you know, obviously it gives the ghosts a chance to interact, <laughs> but it also can, you know, bring in much needed revenue and exposure and history to the general public. So kudos to you guys for that. Ah, thank you. I know that... Um... When I go to these history projects, or um, I'm also taking class in historic preservation. Mm. When I first started doing that, you know, they would clutch their pearls, and, <laughs> you know, get the vapors over having ghost hunts. But when you explain them, that's the only way that we can make money for matching grants. And that's our main revenue. And uh, the public likes it. And it's also a good way to introduce the history. They, they're interested in ghosts. Well, you can't really investigate ghosts if you don't know what happened to bring the ghosts there. So it's a great way to, um, to use it as a teaching tool. But I think in the historic area, um, it wasn't accepted for a really long time. You weren't considered like a proper place if you did the ghost hunts. And I think that's starting to change as they understand that it's also part of a cultural heritage to have people to come in there and experience these kind of things. So I think it's a lot more acceptable now than it was 10 years ago. Absolutely. It's funny. Um, years ago, the Mark Twain house invited Adam and I to do kind of a a roundtable discussion with a number of historical uh, societies and locations to kind of talk about the benefits of including the paranormal in their um, in in their schedules or or what have you or their programs and. Uh, it was nice. It was nice to be able to kind of explain that you're you're reaching a different generation, really. You know, it's uh, unfortunately not a lot of teenagers are walking into historical societies these days right. and thumbing through these things. But you introduce the idea of the paranormal and ghost hunting and suddenly they are taking an interest. And, you know, that's how I got into the whole paranormal research thing. My dad tricked me and <laughs> took me to haunted places and then taught me the history, you know, so... Um, that is so cool. Yeah, I think that I think that's really great. But this history at this place in particular, it ranges from very dark and mysterious to very positive and light. Uh, and so I imagine that the spirits that you interact with kind of cover that gamut as well, right? That's one of the things I find so fascinating. A lot of houses, if you go to, they'll have one era where an important person lived there. Um, but I mean, that land goes back... Some of the hauntings go back to the 1600s. Uh -huh. And then, of course, we're known as a Revolutionary War house, um, but innovators. And there's so much stuff going on through the Victorian times. And then, of course, everybody wants to talk about the speakeasy and the Prohibition era. Um, but I find the Victorian times really fascinating because that time period at the house, there was a different family there every decade. Right. So um, people have seen a Victorian lady in the hallway who might think is different from the other Victorian lady that we've spoken to in other parts of the house. One is older, one is younger. Um, so that's always interesting to try to figure out. And then, of course, there's been a gentleman who's been seen in the window waving to people, which is curious. 
Um, I haven't had the pleasure of having him wave to me, but from the description, he seems to be of that area too with the long white beard and kind of mutton chop sideburns on the side. So, yeah, I think um, I feel like I remember us setting up a camera trying to capture that ghost from outside. <laughs> so um, now, do you know offhand if before, like when this was operating as the restaurant and everything years ago, did they have any hauntings? Do people remember it having a haunted reputation even back then? Well, that was the challenge when I first started because I had so many experiences there and I kept thinking, I can't be the only one. Mm-hmm. The last owner of the house who left in 1992 would send me messages saying, stop telling people the house is haunted. It's not. Yeah. Um, but I have since had people that worked for her on my tours, waiters, dishwashers, bartenders who used to work there that did have experiences that told me about it. And when I talked to um, Mr. Glink, who opened the restaurant in the 1920s, his grandson lives next door in the carriage house. Oh. And one of the conversations I had with him was, oh, yeah, they tell me that my grandfather haunts the attic. So there had to have been stories before the 2000s. Right. See, I find that I love hearing about kind of how hauntings have progressed or how they've been perceived over the the years. Um, Now, I do remember when I was there, I have to ask about this. Do you think there is a tunnel I heard there was a tunnel potentially from the house to the down to the water. Do you think that exists? We believe that there was two. So okay. we do know of one that's definitely was there. The archaeologists um, during one of our digs in 2013 discovered the path oh. of one of the tunnels. And uh, we do believe that there's one on the other side of the house that would have gone down to um, the wharf which is on the other side of the train tracks. So it's uh, kind of dangerous to get to now. But we do think, we we figured it probably collapsed somewhere between 1960s, 1970s in that time frame. And the area was bricked over for safety reasons. Ah, uh, got it. Yeah, you can see it. Like, I, I'm just, I find old tunnels to be so interesting and mysterious. <laughs> yes, so. well, this is very interesting. We have been awarded um, another grant to do an archaeology dig. So we work in conjunction with Monmouth University, and this time around, they're going to use ground-penetrating radar. Um, One reason is we don't know where the family's buried. Uh, Um, And also, Annis Boudinay Stockton died in the house in 1801, and for some reason, she is not buried with her husband, Richard Stockton, in Princeton. So that's strange. So I've had people writing me all over the country at times, you know, do you know where she's buried? Nope. So um, it would be really interesting to find that out. And we're also trying to track the second tunnel. That's exciting. I mean, I think that the more information you can find, I think that's going to be, you know, very helpful for you, but also very helpful for your ghosts, you know, and as you're investigating, I'm so curious to know, like, what will happen with the activity when you start doing that work there. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) <laughs> You'll have to keep me posted. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. And my little friend in the basement, he seems to be guarding something near the tunnel entrance. Maybe and it's him. S- <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know. But it would be fascinating if they found something in that era. And if they did, what would his reaction be? Yeah. So that'll be very interesting. That is wild. Okay, so tell us, like, if people want to support the mansion or if they want to visit the mansion, what do they need to do? You can go to whitehellmansion.org. 
um, donation help us very much. If you see the house, you can see that there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but we feel that this house is very important to American history, not just the history of New Jersey and the Revolutionary War, but there's very few stories about women from the Revolutionary War, and we feel that her story is really important. And in order to tell her story, we really need to save her house. Yeah. So um, if anybody's willing to donate, that's wonderful. We do have tours monthly to teach the history. And of course, there are some ghost hunting opportunities out there, too. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, I do you. find the mansion to be so fascinating. I hope to be able to visit it very soon. I'm going to be in the area in uh, the fall doing some talks, so I might have to stop by. Yes, please. That'd be wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Don. I appreciate it. Thank you. The White Hill Mansion has had so many identities and an incredibly rich history. It's no wonder it's haunted. I love watching the friends of the White Hill Mansion breathe new life into the location, and they could very much use your help if you've taken an interest. Because with everything that's happened there in the last 300 years, imagine what the next 300 years holds for that majestic old mansion. I'm Amy Bruni, and this was Haunted Road. Hey friends, believe it or not, my Life with the Afterlife True Tales of the Paranormal Fall Speaking Tour is already very much filling up, and dates are posted on my website at amybruni.com. If you're interested in seeing me in person uh, and in some venues or at any conventions or strange escapes that may be near you, please visit that event's calendar to see if I'll be anywhere in your neck of the woods. I would love to get spooky with you. Again, that is amybruni.com. Haunted Road is hosted and written by me, Amy Bruni, with additional research by Taylor Hagedorn and Cassandra De Alba. This show is edited and produced by Rima Elkayali, with supervising producer Josh Thane and executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. Haunted Road is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. Learn more about this show over at grimandmild.com. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.